morning, everyone. What a joy and privilege to be here from the country of Madagascar to now the Master's University pulpit. What a testimony of God's grace. Thank you, Pastor Harry, for the kind introduction and for um, everything that you've invested in, in my life as well through Cornerstone and through that time that I've known you. So um, we have a lot of ground to cover today. So as we would say, let's move it, move it to our passage. <laughs> so we're going to be... <laughs> We're going to be in Daniel chapter 1, so open your Bible to Daniel chapter 1, and I'm going to be quite ambitious today because we're going to cover the whole first chapter, Daniel chapter 1. <laughs> Daniel chapter 1, really love this book, named my first son Daniel for the character of Daniel there, really love this book, so let's go in there. Daniel chapter 1, starting in verse 1. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. The Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand, along with some of the vessels of the house of God, and he brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, and he brought the vessels into the treasury of his God. Then the king ordered Ashpenaz, the chief of his officials, to bring in some of the sons of Israel, including some of the royal family and of the nobles, youth in whom was no defect, who were good-looking, showing intelligence in every branch of wisdom, endowed with understanding and discerning knowledge, and who had the ability for serving in the king's court. And he ordered him to teach them the literature and language of the Chaldeans. The king appointed for them a daily ration for the king, from the king's food and from the wine which he drank and appointed that they should be educated three years, at the end of which they were to enter the king's personal service. Among them, from the sons of Judah, were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Then the commander of the officials assigned new names to them, and to Daniel he assigned the name Belteshazzar, to Hananiah Shadrach, to Mishael Meshach, and to Azariah Abednego. But Daniel made up his mind that he would not defile himself with the king's choice food or the, with the wine which he drank. So he sought permission from the commander of the officials that he might not defile himself. Now God granted, favor to, granted Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the commander of the officials. And the commander of the officials said to Daniel, I am afraid of my lord the king who has appointed your food and your drink for why should he see your faces looking more haggard than the youth who are your own age? Then you would make me forfeit my head to the king. But Daniel said to the overseer, whom the commander of the official had appointed over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, Please, test your servants for ten days, and let us be given some vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then let our appearance be observed in your presence and the appearance of the youth who are eating the king's choice food and, and deal with your servants according to what you see. So he listened to them in this matter and tested them for 10 days. At the end of 10 days, their appearance seemed better and they were fatter than all the youths who had been eating the king's choice food. So the overseer continued to withhold their choice food and the wine they were to drink and kept giving them vegetables. As for these four youth, God gave them knowledge and intelligence in every branch of literature and wisdom. Daniel even understood all kinds of visions and dreams. Then at the end of the days which the king had specified for presenting them, 
the commander of the officials presented them before Nebuchadnezzar. The king talked with them, and out of, of them all, not out of them all, not one was found like Daniel, Ananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. So they entered the king's personal service. As for every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king consulted them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and conjurers who were in all his realm. And Daniel continued until the first year of Cyrus the king. Please bow with me in prayer. Father, so grateful for your word. Asking you, Lord, now that you would help me to be a tool to speak to your people. They have nothing to hear from me. They want to hear from you. Please prepare their hearts, my heart, so that we might know, love, and obey you more as we learn from you. In your son's precious name, amen. Let's be honest here. Which one of you would not want to be described as what is described there in verse 4? Let's be honest. Let's be plain and honest here. Who wouldn't want to be described as with no defect, good-looking, showing intelligence in every branch of wisdom, endowed with understanding and discerning knowledge? You would love that, right? And maybe that's one of the reasons why you come here. You want to pursue that. I don't know about the good-looking part. That's kind of part of your genes. But at least to show intelligence in every branch of wisdom. You want to develop your, your, your knowledge. You want to be known as someone who is the cream of the crop. Who of you wouldn't be the happiest guy or the happiest girl if he was described in that way? John, good-looking, endowed with every in every area of understanding and knowledge, showing intelligence in every branch of wisdom. You would like that, wouldn't you? The world actually is satisfied with just one of those areas. I mean, we, we celebrate people and we call people stars just because they could pretend to be someone in a 90-minute movie. And they're celebrated for that. But one that could show all of those qualities would be an exceptional human being. But yet in our text, and Please don't get me wrong, I'm not saying that those things are wrong and it's bad to possess those things, but there are four individuals that are set apart, that are singled out, not because of those only, because they had a singular trait that made them exceptional. And the singular trait that really made them exceptional are not in verse 4, but are per are per is pervasive through this text. It's their unshakable faith and their unconditional commitment to serve God. During more than 70 years of service to various Babylon, Babylon kings, Daniel steadfastly held his faith to God. None of the circumstances of his life made him compromise on his resolve to be obedient to God. And so what are the ingredients of that unshakable commitment, of that unshakable faith that Daniel had that made him and his friends exceptional. We are going to look this morning in this passage at four aspects of that faith so that you and I would be challenged and encouraged to live in the same way, to manifest that same unshakable faith in the world that we are living in right now. The first two aspects, we will focus more on the inside, on what is going on within, on your convictions, on your motivations, on why Daniel did the things he did and why we should do the things we do. And the two other aspects have to do about the outward manifestation, the external evidence of that inner confidence. So we're basically going to look at the roots 
and we're going to look at the fruits. So, you ready? Let's go. So, in first, in verse 1 and 2, we see that an unshakable faith rests upon knowing that God is always in control. An unshakable faith rests upon knowing that God is always in control. We are in 605 B.C., and General Nebuchadnezzar is sent by his father, Nabopolassar, and who was king of Babylon at the time, and he's going on a conquest and he's defeating the Assyrian Empire and is defeating the Egyptian Empire, and through there he goes through Palestine and conquer Judah as well, and Jehoiakim is defeated and is taken captive. You could read about that in Second Chronicles chapter 36 and verse 6 and 7 there. And at that time, he's taken captive, and so are some young Jews, including Daniel and his friends. And it's about that time that Nebuchadnezzar hears about the uh, death of his father, and he returns to Babylon to become the king. And as he establishes himself there as the king, he, 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 he is strongly then the man of power in, the, in that part of the world. And you might easily think that the main character here, the one who is in control of things, is Nebuchadnezzar. I mean, he came to Jerusalem, he besieged it, he defeated Jehoiakim, and we see there in verse 1 and 2 that he took some of the vessels from the house of God and brought it into the treasury of his God. Actually, even Nebuchadnezzar himself might have thought that he is in control. And yet the writer here makes it really clear who is in control. He had no doubt. Look there in verse 2. What does he say? The Lord gave. The Lord gave. The Lord ordained those things to happen. The Lord made Jehoiakim surrender. The Lord was behind it all. And actually this verse from the outset of this book is actually pointing to the overall message of this book because Daniel is trying to encourage the children of Israel as they are in exile that actually this temporary rule of Gentile powers is all under into God's plan and God is still sovereign over all nations and over the plans of kings and other nations. Actually, he told them so some hundred years before that. If you go to Isaiah chapter 39, in Isaiah chapter 39, verse 6 and 7, he says, Behold, the days are coming when all that is in your house and all, the, and all that your fathers have laid up in store to this day will be carried out to Babylon. Nothing will be left, says the Lord, and some of your sons who will issue from you, whom you will beget, will be taken away, and they will become officials in the palace of the king of Babylon. That's quite precise pr prophecy, right? And it's happening right now in our passage. God told them a hundred years ago that this would take place. God is in control. The Lord gave. We see that in verse 2, and we see that as well in verse 9. In verse 9, it's the same verb that is used there as it says there that God grants Daniel uh, favor in the eyes of the official. So we could see there the Lord having control not, not only over worldwide events, but he also has control over the volition and the plans of those who oppose him. It is still the same verb that is being used in verse 17 as God is the one who gives his people the skills and knowledge they need for his purposes. Nothing and no one is outside his control. Daniel here is echoing the reality of the infallibility of God's sovereign plan. 
at a time where his promises seems to have to be shattered, where Israel is taken into exile, and people might have wondered, where is God? What is happening? We are being defeated. Our nation is taken over. Is God still in control? And here Daniel wants to proclaim to those people and to us that yes, God is always in control. God is sovereign over, over all things. Daniel is echoing what the psalmist says in um, Psalm 2, right? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us tear their fetters apart and cast away their cords from us. But he who sits in heaven laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. One of my favorite verses in the Bible is in Isaiah 14, 24, and it says, as I have intended, so it will happen. And just as have I have planned, so it will stand. Brothers and sisters, your faith will be unshakable if you have the confidence that God is the one that has allowed you to be in every situation that you find yourself into. If you entrust yourself, in even in difficult circumstances, to trusting the fact that it is part of His sovereign plan, you will rest, you will rest, you will not fret. You will rest confident in his absolute sovereignty. There is one more passage in which the verb, you know, to give that we saw in verse 2, he's used in the letter of, of, uh, of Daniel, in the book of Daniel, and it's very important. In Daniel chapter 9, turn with me there if you have your Bible. In Daniel chapter 9, verse 9 and 10. To the Lord our God belong compassion and forgiveness, for we have rebelled against him. Nor have we obeyed the voice of the Lord our God to walk in his teachings, and here is our verb, which he set before us through his servants, the prophets. The Lord gave, the Lord ordained circumstances. The Lord ordained even the, the own fabric of your mind, the way you think, the skills that you have. But the Lord also ordained to give us his word through his servants, the prophets and the apostles. And that word that we have is where we should place that confidence. And friends, if you're still in rebellion against his will that has been declared in this book, then it doesn't matter that you're here at TMU. You could be here at TMU, but if you haven't surrendered your life to the one who is the giver, the, the compassionate God, the giver of this word, the one to whom you should pledge full allegiance, the one to whom you should surrender your life, the one to whom you owe obeying every commandment that he has stipulated and given in his word, then you don't have that faith that Daniel had. All you have is a pretense faith, an appearance only. But here what we're talking about is a deep-seated assurance that God is His and He is God's. And that comes from an obedient life, coming from learning all of, all of those things that God has revealed, obeying the voice of the Lord as He is speaking through His prophets. Is that you? College years are years of uncertainty. You are at a crossroad of your life. You are going to take life-shaping decisions. And the things that you do now is going to affect the rest of your life and even eternity. And maybe some of you are wrestling with some of those doubts right now. 
Some of you are thinking in the same way, what is going to happen next? You don't know what the future holds for you. Here, I am to tell you, you can rest in one thing. You can rest in the faith that you have in God. If you have surrendered your life to Christ, you could rest in knowing that your God is in control and is going to work out all things for his glory and for your eternal good. That is true rest. And that is the kind of rest that Daniel had even if he was taken into exile into a quite hostile environment. So an unshakable faith rests. Let's move to our second point. An unshakable faith not only rests, but an unshakable faith resists worldly indoctrination. An unshakable faith resists worldly indoctrination. There were three waves of, um, um, of people taken into captivity. There was 605 BC, as I mentioned at the beginning. Then another group was taken in 597 and another group in 586. And Nebuchadnezzar did that because he had a clear plan. He wanted first to take those young men with high intellectual, moral, and social qualifications because he believed that those young men would be easy to influence and to shape so that these young men would become then the leaders and when the rest of the Israelites come into, into Babylon. So because of that, we see there in verse 5 that he has a clear plan uh, for those young Jews, right? They were to undergo a three-year training program, and during that program, they would be trained into the Chaldean educational program, which included astronomy, mathematics, medicine, but also a good dose of Babylonian literature and art. They were to learn the Chaldean culture and mindset, they, 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 they wanted those people to be shaped in that mindset so that when the, uh, the rest of the Jews come, they could inculcate that as well to their own people. And so he might have thought to himself, let me get some young men who are still influenceable. Let me bring them to one of the most beautiful cities in the world of the time, and they would succumb to the beauties of this city. They are free from parental control. They have power. They have prominent positions, and they have a life of riches and pleasures. He promised them money, power, and pleasure. What more would a young man want? What more would you want if you were in that situation? They were given quite an opportunity. But the indoctrination process didn't stop there with the alluring position that they got. They also, it also went into a name change, as you could see there in verse 7. So Daniel, the meaning of Daniel is God is judge, and they changed it to uh, Belteshazzar, which means Bel, um, attributed to the god Marduk. Uh, god, Bel protects his life. The name Ananiah, the Lord shows grace, is changed to Shadrach, which means under the command of Aku, which was the moon god. Mishael, who is like God, Mishael, is changed to Meshach, who is like Aku, which is that moon god again. Azariah, the Lord helps, is changed to Abednego, the servant of Nego, who was the god of learning in uh, the Babylonian culture. We could easily see what was done there, right? God was taken out of the picture. The god of Israel, Yahweh, El, was taken out, and he was replaced with Babylonian gods. But there was one more step to that indoctrination process, and that involved food. But for me, especially in that culture in which, you know, eating and drinking was more than just having a snack together, it actually um, was part of their lifestyle. 
you could see there that they wanted them to eat and drink what the king ate and drank. And that was part of that indoctrination process. And we could see there that Daniel and his friends accepted the name change because they knew that it was just, you know, an outside, uh, an outside change. It didn't affect who they were actually. You could see as well that they uh, accepted the education because they were ready to sift that education through what they have learned already. But you could see there that they refused to defile themselves by eating the king's food and drink. So there's been debate as to why they refused to eat it. And I'm not going to go even into, you know, the Daniel diet because, I mean, you know, even if you just read the passage, it says there that they became fatter than the king's subjects. So I don't know what diet is that. But anyway, so some people believe that they refused to eat it because uh, the food was not kosher, not done according to Jewish tradition. Um, but that wouldn't really uh, cover the, the issue of the wine. And also there was no guarantee that the vegetables um, that they asked for later were also kosher. So I don't believe really that it had to do with the, with the kosher aspect. I believe that they refused to eat and drink because they knew that it would constitute a compromise to their lifestyle. Eating and drinking was often associated, especially in those days, with a hedonistic lifestyle, and it was often associated with debauchery. So they knew that it wasn't just food or drink. It has a, a bigger significance. And, and friends, I want to argue with you, it is still the case nowadays. It, it, it is an area that we still need to be careful in. One commentator puts it this way, we should remember that the devil is an even greater danger in the world's dining rooms than in the den of lions. When we hear the sounds of the king's meal being served, when we hear the glasses clink, we should be even more on our guard than when famished lions open their mouth. This is a real danger we face, friends. We are on our guards when we have those big life-shaping decisions to take, when we see those big dangers. But often the areas where we compromise are those mundane instances are those little things where worldliness creeps in, in areas that seem insignificant, but do have their significance. They resist the footstep of the indoctrination process as a way for them to draw the line between them and the culture that they were in. They wanted to take a clear stand as a child of God. And let me ask you, where do you draw the line? Where do you draw the line? Between yourself as a child of God and the culture that you live in? Where do you draw the line in topics such as music, such as fashion, such as your use of money, such as weight loss, such as relationships? Where do you draw the line? Or is that line so fuzzy that even this world doesn't know where you draw the line? Where do you stand out as a master's university student? More importantly, as a child of God, where have you drawn that line? The Bible calls us to that uncompromised lifestyle. Romans 12, 2, right? Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may prove that the will of God is that which is good and acceptable and perfect. Do you compromise your faith to be accepted in the world? Or do you stand on your faith so that the world would accept it. God is calling us to a life of truth and obedience to his commands, radically free from worldliness. 
What are those daily choices you make? What are those daily choices you fail to make? Stand. Resist. Resist worldly indoctrination like our friends here in this passage. Have that deep-rooted conviction that Christ is sufficient, that Christ is better, that God could fulfill all your needs both now and forever, that you don't need those temporary pleasures that the world promises that are fleeting. Stand. Resist the evil one, just as we sang in the song earlier. We are the church of Christ. We are to rise and we are to point people to our God and to the promise that we have through a radical, uncompromised lifestyle. So an unshakable faith rests. An unshakable faith resists. And thirdly, an unshakable faith resounds when being tested. When being tested, that your faith resounds, your faith is expressed, your faith is manifested. The, young, the, the word there that you see in verse 4 for young men is, the, uh, is a word in Hebrew that describes young men, that people that are usually around 13 to 17 years old, and most commentaries and scholars would agree that uh, Daniel was around 15 years old was take, when he was taken into exile. And yet at that young age, he showed a resolve and a commitment to obey God's commands rather than to follow men into a sinful lifestyle. He was well-rooted. He had learned God's word from a young age, and he has graven it into his heart. When I see the life of Daniel here, I see Proverbs chapter 3, verse 1 to 4, right? My son, do not forget my teaching, but let your heart keep my commandments for length of days and years of life. They will add to you. Do not let kindness and truth leave you. Bind them around your neck. Write them on the tablet of your heart so you will find favor and good repute in the eyes of God and man. And that is exactly that we see demonstrated here in the life of Daniel. He chose to write those, the word of God onto his heart and he took a bold stand for his faith. You could see there in verse 8, Daniel made up his mind that he would not defile himself with the king's choice food or with the wine which he drank. That is quite amazing. A 15-year-old in exile going against the king's command. It's a bold act of faith. He was not willing to defile himself. He was not willing to compromise, albeit from the command, because of a commandment of a king. He had a more important king to obey, and that is God. You are, brothers and sisters, in a safe environment here at TMU. You are with like-minded people. You are intellectually fed. You are spiritually fed. You can easily be Christian, act Christian, speak Christian here. Speak Christianese, you know, that language. But who you really are will really be revealed when you're out there. Your actions when you're out there will either, will either proclaim your faith or it will reveal who your heart really belongs to. You will either fear God or you will fear man you'll have a clear choice to make. Your faith, if it is unshakable, will be manifested at that point when you cannot be silent, where you would not have the opportunity to hide, but that you would have to stand for it. Daniel made up his mind, and so must you make up your mind as well. 
But look in the, the manner as well. I want to point as well to the manner by which Daniel uh, manifested his, his stand. He didn't, you know, go on a hunger strike, you know, or he didn't, like, became, uh, went ballistic or pick up a fight with the officials because he didn't want to have, you know, the, 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 the king's food. I don't know how many of you are um, w uh, sometimes uh, reading that uh, Babylon Bee, that Christian satire site. And there was that article one day said that there was that man who was unsure if he's persecuted because he's a Christian or because he's a massive jerk, you know? <laughs> well, the problem with that satire is that it's close to reality. It's very close to a, a reality. We lose sometimes the balance between assertiveness and meekness. We lose sometimes the balance between standing on the truth and doing so, as 1 Peter 3.15 tells us, with gentleness and reverence. Not only must you carry the message of Christ, but you must be an ambassador of Christ doing so. Let me ask you, how many of your friends outside TMU know that you are a Christian and see it through the choices that you make every day? How do you react when they challenge you or tempt you? If I were to speak to them, what would they say about your overall attitude? This question was asked to me one day, and it, 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 it hit hard, and I always thought about that in terms of integrity and in terms of manifesting my faith. Ask yourself this. Is there one person that you know of and that you can think about now that you would be ashamed to see standing there at the door to reveal something to this all audience about you? Is there one person that you would be ashamed because he could talk down about your faith and about the way you walk in Christ if he or she would appear at the door of this auditorium? If that is the case, repent. Ask for forgiveness. God can restore you and stand boldly for the faith that you have. An unshakable faith rests an unshakable faith resists. An unshakable faith resounds when being tested. And fourthly, in verse 17 to 21, we see that an unshakable faith is rewarded and used by God for His glory. An unshakable faith is rewarded and used by God for His glory. In the Proverbs that we saw, read earlier in chapter th uh, Proverbs 3, verse 4, we said that, we said that you know, we'll find favor in the eyes of God and man, and we see that manifested in the life of those four Hebrew young men. They did find favor in the sight of God, as we saw in verse 17. God gave them knowledge and intelligence, and to Daniel even gave, gave him the, the gift of interpreting gifts. God rewarded their faithfulness with gifts and talents to be used for His glory. And what a turn of event, if you think about it. These young, destitute Hebrew young men now being raised to prominence, now being acknowledged by the king as the sharpest knives in the drawer. They went above all the Chaldean intelligentsia. That turn of event itself speaks of God's sovereignty and faithfulness to his promises because, again, let me emphasize here, the true hero of this story is not Daniel. The true hero of this story is not those four Hebrew young men. The true hero of this story is God. It is God that is sovereignly in control of all things and that He is putting them in places of favor so that He would accomplish His plan. 
Daniel and his friends found favor in the eyes of men, and the king took them into his special service. And for the next 70 years of his life in exile, he would stay in that position because simply there was no better man around. He continued to be committed. We all know the incident of the lion's den, right? But one of the things that I love about that story is what happens the next morning. And what happened the next morning, the next day, because of Daniel's act of faith, Darius, a foreign king who has been oppressing the people of Israel, runs to the den and praises and worships God. Listen to this declaration that he makes. I make a decree that in all the dominion of my kingdom, men are to fear and tremble before the God of Daniel. For he is the living God and enduring forever, and his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. Wow, what a declaration. And that came from four young men taking a stand that they would not compromise on their faith. Brothers and sisters, do not, do not underestimate the potential impact that you could have for God's kingdom. Do not underestimate the way that God could use you powerfully. You are going to graduate and get out of this place. And some of you, not all of you, will go to, you know, the master's seminary and be in full-time ministry. But you would be in areas of business, of science, of engineering. And you will be speaking with the powers and in the authorities of this world. You would be, some of you would be in places of influence. And you would be able then to make a stand. You would be able to manifest that unshakable faith that Daniel and his friends manifested. I am praying today that many Daniels and Danielas <laughs> would come out of this institution. I pray that during your time here, you would be deeply rooted in the Word so that you could bear magnificent fruits out there that you would have deep-seated convictions that would be so ingrained into your being that it would exude, that it would come out of all of your pores and manifest it in everything that you say, do, and think. Luther puts it this way, defines faith as a living, unshakable confidence in God's grace. It is so certain that someone would die a thousand times for it. Would you die for your faith? Would you live for your faith? Would you manifest that kind of resolve to be an example in this world of what it means to follow Christ? And would you press on until the day that he comes back or calls, me, calls you home and that he places that crown of victory on your head and says, well done, good and faithful servant. I pray that that would be all of you. I pray that we would all be able to celebrate one day as we look back how God has used you in, the different, in this nation or beyond in being ambassadors of our glorious God. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for the example of faithful, courageous, bold, young men like Daniel. And I'm praying, Lord, that a few here have been challenged today 
to live with the same commitment to live in obedience to you. I pray that you would give each and every one of us the eagerness to stand and to passionately proclaim your word with our life and with our words so that the whole world would see that you are the one and only sovereign God. And it's in your son's precious name we pray. Amen.